Today's episode is kind of like a twofer because our guest today not only has a degree in economic and political development from Columbia University, but she also works in responsible mining, which is so cool. I never thought I would get to talk to someone who works in mining, and she helps corporations and companies be more ethical and responsible when it comes to sourcing raw materials. She's also the founder of Green Elbows, which helps bring green into everyday life by removing intimidation about taking care of plants. She's just so passionate and knowledgeable about not only, you know, international affairs and mining and also about gardening. And there's a lot of philosophy that goes into this. So I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with my guest, Becky Burton. Also follow her on Instagram at green.elbows where she posts all about gardening and plants and she does it in a really fun and clever way. So you'll learn more about plants and have a lot of fun too. You're listening to the Half Hippie Podcast with Tara Milo. I'm a half hippie, half princess cat mom, city girl, introvert, and entrepreneur. I don't fit into a box, and you don't either, but I'm committed to making the world a better place through my lifestyle and my business. I love talking about sustainability because I know that you can make a positive difference without giving up the things you love. Here on the Half Hippie Podcast, we're talking about sustainability and entrepreneurship. We'll share stories about what makes us all half hippie and what our other half does to make a positive impact in the world. Let's go. Welcome to the Half Hippie Podcast. First of all, I would love to know what you think a hippie is. Like what what comes to mind when you hear the word hippie? Sure. I actually envision the modern day hippie to be someone who is really connected with the natural world. And actually someone who's really grounded and present. That's kind of the definition, actually, that I would land on. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's exactly what I strive to be. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, What about, like, what was your first encounter or the first time you saw the hippie thing? It's funny. I remember coming back from France. I lived in France, gosh, ages ago. It's been a really long time. And I lived there for a year and I came home and talked to some friends and we were just, I don't know, chatting about life and our perspectives. And I must have had kind of perhaps a more open perspective than I had before because I remember my friends then starting to call me the quasi hippie. And I don't totally know why they chose that, Um, but I guess it was just more, um, uh, I don't know that it was necessarily a movement into being more grounded and present, um, which is kind of what I I would, like I said, that would be my definition now. But I think just maybe a bit more openness um, to the world, to different perspectives, um, maybe to taking things a bit more easily. Yeah, taking things more easy. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, for sure. Sorry, that sounds a bit strange. Yeah. No, I think that's it. Like chill and take it easy and go with the flow kind of. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That openness. Where did you grow up? I think we have a similar background. Yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Utah 
And um, yes. yeah, uh, loved it there, surrounded by mountains, of course, the desert in the south. I loved growing up there. Actually, I had such a beautiful community um, and just felt so cared for by all of my neighbors. And um, yeah, it was it was a lovely place to grow up. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, I grew up there too. I had a slightly different community experience, but the connection to nature was incredible. We had a view of the mountains and there was actually a horse pasture in our backyard. So there wasn't a house. It was an unimpeded view of the mountains and it was incredible. Yes, they're so grounding and so majestic. They really are so inspiring, actually. Yeah. And then I moved to Ohio. It's just a little side story. And we drove by like the ski resort and my, my probably boyfriend at the time was like, that's the ski resort. I'm like, what do you mean? That's a hill. And he's like, yeah, I know, but that's the ski. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not. <laughs> Different story that's not... altogether. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Utah is pretty incredible when it comes to all of that. Yeah. They really set the bar high for nature and it was an outdoor childhood, right? Like we were always outside. Oh, yes, very much so. And always in the mountains. I remember that so much. Yes. Hiking and um, still to this day, one of my favorite things is just to go to the mountains and cook dinner on the fire. Oh, yeah. nice. Love, love, love it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. The mountains were incredible. And the lakes, there were, mount- there were lakes in the mountains and we would, oh, it yes. was fun. All of those. Yes. Um is that where your kind of green connection started or did that come later? Oh, really good question. I actually, I would say yes. Um, the, I would, as I've started Green Elbows, I've had a memory of just trying to dig back actually and say, where, did, where was this born? Where did this actually come from? And I have a very distinct memory. I think I was in first grade, so about six years old, of planting a little bean seed in a paper cup and putting it on my bathroom windowsill and watching it grow and it grew to the point where it actually produced one or two beans and I remember eating those and just thinking this is such a miracle that this little plant that grew in this little cup could produce something that uh, tastes so good right and that I could grow and that I could grow it that like by the magic of me putting the bean in the soil it allowed it to happen and so I think that it probably really was from when I was very young actually. Um, but then I would not say that I, I filled my teenage years with a connection to green. Um, I, I, I don't know that I lost it, but it's, I certainly didn't foster it at all. That said, as I started to think about my undergraduate degree, I, I was looking in, this is sort of funny, but I was looking in magazines and there was an article about a gentleman who worked in landscape architecture and it showed his office and it was all surrounded by green. He had all of these plants inside and just the way that he described his work of being half inside and half outside. I thought, yes, that's what I want my life to be. And so I actually enrolled in landscape architecture. Um, I mean, I looked into it further. It wasn't just based on the article, but I looked into it further, decided, yes, landscape architecture, that's fantastic. I went into it. And actually, I really did love the coursework. I remember in my first semester, one of the classes was called Woody Plants and Materials. And as I told my friends, they thought this could not, they teased me like this could not be a real degree Look out. Um, <laughs> but I, actually, I loved that class. We would go all over campus, learn all about the different trees. We pressed their leaves. We learned their Latin names. It was a fantastic class, actually. It was really 
wonderful. And so I did feel uh, very connected to the plant side of it. Um, it was more the architecture side, actually, where I felt like, okay, maybe there's not a fit. I just felt like I wasn't so strong in sort of naturally like the design or the, let's say the rendering more. The design I think is fine, but it was actually the actual rendering. And yeah, it just didn't feel as much of a fit. And so I actually, after my first year in undergrad, went to Kenya and just fell in oh, love wow. with the idea of international travel and uh, the possibility of working in development and came back and changed to international studies because of that. So it's really fascinating to think of starting in landscape architecture. And then I had this 20 years where I worked in international studies and international development. And now it's sort of come full circle where I work in both. Yes. I, I still work in that area of, I mean, in responsible sourcing specifically in terms of international development and international uh, trade. And then also now bringing back in the green. So yes, it was born in Utah, um, but definitely <laughs> developed elsewhere. I love how you're getting to, I don't know, you're just getting to connect to and use all sides of yourself. Like you're good at international relations. You're good at the other work that you do, work, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but then you also get to do your green passion that started when you were a kid. That's so cool. I feel so grateful every day, really. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm so, so grateful with how it's all come together. It's been a long meandering road, um, <laughs> mostly good, to be honest, uh, but sort of all over the place. And it's been, it's wonderful to see how it's settled and landed. Well, let's talk for a minute about your other work, because when you first told me, I was like, mm, mm -mm, that's not hippie, but <laughs> <laughs> you do make it I, I don't know. I just, I admire the work that you're doing so much. So tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. So the other work that you're referring to is the work that I talked about in, in terms of international development. And what I mean by that is, so I studied at Columbia University, got a degree in economic and political development, and then really focused on corporate social responsibility. So really working in sustainability and specifically responsible sourcing. And mm -hmm even more specifically in responsible mining. So, yes. um, and so I now work for an organization called the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance. And just stay with me for a little bit on this one. So the idea is that it, you, I'm sure that you've seen on maybe paper packages or even Kleenex boxes on the back of books, there's mm. something called a little, um, the, you might have seen a little symbol of a tree and it says that, yeah. you know, this was printed on Forest Stewardship Council certified paper, for example, right? So the idea is that there's a certification system that has been in existence for over 20 years called FSC certified Forest Stewardship Council. And the idea is that there's an actual certification that a, for, that a forestry company would go through to say, these trees have been produced uh, in a way where we respect the labor, we respect the land, we're not cutting down virgin forest, right? We're not cutting down um, any species that are endangered in terms of plants. And mm -hmm. then as you as a consumer can choose to purchase that FSC certified paper and feel that you're supporting the good work that is happening. And the reason that I'm going so deep into it is basically what we're doing with IRMA, with the Mining Assurance Program, is the equivalent for mining. So yeah. how do you actually say, first of all, what are the responsible practices for mining? And so the, we worked as an organization for a really long time to actually define what it means to mine responsibly. 
And then now what happens is that mining companies the world over can become certified against IRMA. So basically what that means is that an auditor comes onto their operations, they use the IRMA standard or the IRMA set of requirements to show that they are actually mining responsibly. An Mm -hmm. auditor verifies all of that. And then they use that audit report to tell their consumers or potentially communities around them and definitely companies that purchase their materials to say, listen, the way that we're doing mining is responsible vis-a-vis society and the environment. And why is this valuable? Well, if you think about all of the news that's coming out in terms of you know, electronics or cars or whatever it might be that, use, that uses mine materials, Oftentimes, there are there's sort of a critique of the brands who use mined materials, and the, the critique is, don't you know what's happening at the mine site? There's all of these issues, whether it be, uh, let's say, a tailings dam failure where a whole bunch of mine waste goes into a river system, or in some cases, actually, when the, a dam breaks, right, that's, that is holding all of this waste, it actually also can lead to human death. Um, and so, or there's child labor issues or whatever. And so the critique will come out to these companies that are ultimately using the materials, but it's for what's actually happening at the mine site. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how do you actually go to the mine site to say, okay, what's happening here and understand what's happening there and then work with the mine to actually, um, improve its practices And so what we do is we work with all of these different stakeholders, the ones that I've mentioned, mines, communities, um, nonprofits, and purchasers, to basically say, um, to encourage purchasing companies, companies that use mine materials, to ask their mining suppliers to please be certified so that they understand what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah. So that is it in a in a nutshell, and then um, and the idea then, of course, is to just have more confidence in what's actually happening, and just to understand what's going on in the supply chain, which really is being demanded today across the board by companies, by consumers, oftentimes by government, which ah, is a really yeah. good trend actually um, that we're seeing. Right? People want to know where their stuff is coming from, all the way back to its origin, and I think that's really important because it's all along the supply chain that impacts happen. But very often, it's mostly at the point of origin where the majority of the impact happens. Yeah, exactly, which is the mine. So yeah. oh, I admire that work so much. Thank you for doing that. And <laughs> I thank you for explaining it in terms of the FSC stamp that we see on the back of things. I do look for that if I'm looking at yes. two different things. I'm going to choose the one that's more ethical. So exactly. that's amazing. Yep. Yep, exactly. And that's one thing that I would just say, you know, and you're probably going to get to this, but I mean, there is, when I think about sort of just the world of sustainability today, there's so much power that we have as consumers in voting with our dollar. And that's, yeah, just in looking out for that and in supporting companies that really are doing the right thing. There's so much power. That's where change happens. Exactly. And you see a lot of these big, big brands trying to put the the responsibility on consumers, like, what are you going to do to lower your footprint? And now we can say, wait, what are you doing? How are you mining responsibly or sourcing materials responsibly? Because we can only buy what's available to us. So we need these companies to make better stuff. And this certification helps 
educate consumers so that we can demand better stuff. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And I do think there are changes that we can make in our life, but you're right in terms of the big changes that need to happen. It's often at the corporate level, right? Or it's often what companies are doing or governments for that matter. And I think, yes, we need to demand for those changes to be made because that's actually where the real impact is going to happen. That's where the real change is going to be made when corporate behavior changes. Yeah. So is this a seal that we're going to start seeing on our iPhone, for example? Like, can we look for something like that? It's a good question. I mean, in terms of labeling, the what happens is when you think about an iPhone, for example, there's so many different mind materials that go into that. And so um, just because, I mean, this is where we just get into the complexities of it. Um, and, and you would have to track all the way back to each material to be able to make the claims. And so I would say right now, you won't necessarily be seeing a stamp. Um, just, I mean, if you think about paper, right, it's a tree into paper. So it's pretty easy to track. But sure. when you think about a car or a phone or a computer or whatever it might be, there's often so many minerals that go into that and they go through multiple different processes. And so tracking it just becomes a bit more difficult. And if we're going to put a label on something, we want it to be accurate. And yeah. so I would say right now, it's just more about asking those companies that, again, the companies that purchased and used mine materials, hey, do you know where you're components are coming from? Do you know where your mine materials are coming from? And are those mines being certified? And that's really what I would say that we'll be looking for in the near term is just for okay. the companies to make the ask to understand the their supply chain better. Yeah. Okay. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Good information <laughs> because I hate feeling guilty when I go buy a new thing. So knowing how complex all of this is, is helpful because I need a phone, right? Like we of all course. need a phone. Exactly. And, and we so don't many need things to feel that come from mine materials, right? I mean, our whole world, we all use the, the materials. So we certainly can't say no mining. We just yep. need to say, let's do mining better. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Oh, it's so comforting to know that someone is doing this work <laughs> and that we won't see it yet, but it's happening and we can start asking for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, let's get back to plants because that that sounds like it's more fun for you, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I love both of them. The the mining, I think, just gets complicated. I've worked in it for 10 sure. years, so it's very easy for me um, to sort of understand all the nuances. But I know that it's a big, complex world uh, for someone who's never sort of entered the space or talked about it. So yeah. more, um, if I seem... If it seems less enthusiastic, it's only because I'm trying to find the right words to make it clear. But I actually love, love, love the work, mostly because I think if we can get mining right, it is one of the most disruptive industries, but it can also be, um, it can also have a lot of good impacts, right, in terms of supporting communities around it um, and setting up infrastructure where maybe there wasn't infrastructure before. Um, And so there can be good impacts that come from it. And if it's done well, um, even better impacts, right? In terms of if it's if it is if we can improve the industry, we can do a lot. Um, and so I am actually really excited about it because that's the large scale change. And okay. Then, and then in terms of plants, that's sort of the local uh, personal change, right? So I would say the thing that I love so much about the work that I'm doing in both areas is trying to make 
you know, big change, big impact on one side. And then with the plants, trying to make small impact person by person on the other side. And so the work with plants, the work with green elbows, the idea is to just help people bring more green into their lives. And what I mean by that is just bring more plants into their lives, whatever way it might be. Um, And mostly it's about, I mean, I, I was about to say even getting out in nature and parks, but actually it is, I would say it's even more just bringing plants into the home and just the joy that it brings. And I think there's so much to be learned from them in terms of just watching their growth. And there's so much sort of, I, for me, at least peace that I get from just having another living thing that you take care of in your home and that you're able to nurture, that you're able to watch grow. And I also think that there's this beautiful connection between, you know, having your mint plant on your kitchen windowsill and using it to maybe make a beautiful cup of tea and just starting to kind of build this deeper connection with the plant world that hopefully extends over into helping you know, each individual person get out into nature more or work to preserve nature more. That's when I think about green elbows, that's like the goal writ large, right? Is to sort of help people fall in love with plants so that then they fall in love with protecting the natural world. But more than anything, it's just removing the intimidation factor of taking, of taking care of plants. I think there's in the world today, there's so much, uh, there's, you know, I don't just like with social media and sort of these perfectly curated accounts. We always talk about that, right? Like these perfectly curated lives that aren't really real, that don't really show what's actually happening. And I think that has kind of extended to the plant world as well, right? We see these beautiful living rooms filled with these gorgeous interior jungles, (laughs) which are really beautiful and inspiring. But if you've never even watered a uh, let's say a succulent, for example, or taking care of a succulent or a pothos plant or whatever it might be, that can be super intimidating to think how you take care of them. And so it's like, gosh, well, if it needs to look like that, then I won't do it at all. And I think that that's what I want to help people get over. Because I think once you take care of the first plant and you see its growth, you see its cycles, you see just kind of the joy that it brings, like the new baby leaf that comes and the joy that it brings. Um, It can really help sort of the entry into the rest of that world. And that's definitely what happened for me. And I'll just say, it's actually been so fun to see my partner and his change vis-a-vis plants. So he definitely never had any any plants before. Um, He's not so much into this as I am. However, Every morning and every night, he looks at this little bonsai that we just rescued from Ikea that is now flourishing and has all of these new, this new growth. And he, I can see him studying it and looking at it. And I think it's just because there's, there's sort of some magic there, right, in terms of the way that they grow, the way that they um, replenish, the, just the resiliency that they have and what we can learn from that and delight in. And yeah, and just uh, find sort of like companionship in a way, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So so that's really what Green Elbows is about. It's true. That's good. And I didn't mean to say that you weren't equally passionate, but Oh, no, no, that's okay. <laughs> and I hope you can feel how grat- how grateful I am to the work that you do because it is amazing. I'm so glad that you're doing this. It's so so cool. Um yeah, at the thing about plants that is the beauty of that little green bean exercise that we do as kids where we get to grow a green bean. I got to do the same thing. Yes. And 
you get confident and you grow something. You're like, oh my gosh, I can make things. I can grow things. And the confidence that comes from that is so fun. Exactly. Exactly. That you become a steward of this living thing um, that ultimately gives back to you as well. Yes. And it's true. It's quite an adventure to have plants because when I lived in Ohio, we had a garden, a vegetable garden and a big, beautiful English garden. It wasn't big, but a small, beautiful English garden in the backyard. But our house didn't get sun. So I didn't have plants in the house. I had like two or three. Mm -hmm. And now I'm learning plants don't really want direct sunlight right, on them like right. house plants don't I'm like yeah. ah I missed out on 15 years of plants <laughs> because exactly. I thought they didn't like and now I have an apartment and I do get sunlight in this apartment but it's so fun to see the different plants and their kind of not really their personalities but their reactions to me and what I do with them yes yes exactly <laughs> it's so true I mean this is the thing that I love about them plants are pretty predictable, right? If you think about like living with a roommate, for example, let's say they come home and they're moody and you don't know why. And they're saying it's something at work, but really it's because you left your dishes in the sink and maybe they're (laughs) they're not so clear on like what's throwing them off. But a plant, it will always, uh, I mean, there's a science to it, right? And there's a science and an art, of course, but what I mean is like, okay, so if the plant doesn't have water, it will usually exhibit a particular uh, discoloration of its leaves and and it gives you a pretty clear sign hey, I need more water, right? Um, Or if it's too much sunlight, again, you'll see something different showing up on the plant and you know what it needs. Like it's, it's a really good companion in that way because it's very direct and clear about what it actually needs. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I have a funny story about two plants that I have in my apartment (laughs) that I have to tell you about. Please. So one of them is a lipstick plant. It's some kind, I don't know the exact name of it. I don't know the names of any of these, but the lipstick plant is funny because it's very temperamental. And she even told me when I bought it, like, just be careful with this one. It's moody. And my lipstick plant is thriving. Oh, good. And yeah. Fantastic. It's, pro- it's producing little flowers. Like there, there's signs that flowers are coming. And then one time I watered it and apparently it didn't want to be watered and it dropped all the flowers. And I just, I know it broke my heart. I was like, what? And you can't unwater a plant. Sure, sure. (laughs) So I was like poking it, like poking the soil to try to aerate and get it to dry out a little bit better. And now I'm like, I am not giving you water until (laughs) it's like very clear, but see, that's perfect. Right. Because it gave you the signal. Now, you know, um, don't water. Exactly. In terms of, in terms of drying the roots out, you're right. You can't send water, but you can actually, I mean, depending on the plant, take it out and actually sort of take it out of its pot and allow the air to enter. This is just like a practical tip for you and for whoever might be listening, but um, you can take it out sometimes and just kind of let the soil dry without the pot around it, right? For a day or two, maybe. Um, But the thing, I mean, ultimately what you're getting at and what I think is the most important is that the plant gave you a clear signal and now you know, and now you just move on together. And I'm sure that everything else was going right right? If the flowers were growing, the plant is telling you it's happy. And so where it, where it is in the house is right. So you know that, um, you know, in terms of drafts or sunlight or whatever. So you just leave it where it is. And now you just know, okay, so I need to water you less. I just need to put my <laughs> finger into the soil uh, before I water you. And 
make sure that you're totally dry, for example, and then give you a drink. Um, yes, exactly. It was, yeah, it was a good lesson. And now it is producing even more flowers. Oh, that's wonderful. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So we, we got through it. <laughs> wonderful. That's so good. But then I also have a Monstera, which everyone says is the easiest thing. And I told you before, my Monstera hates me. And you're like, it doesn't hate you. No, it does. You should see it. It's curling. Oh, dear. (laughs) It should not be curling. And I have tried everything. And so I'm just like, I'm just going to leave you here for a minute and let you figure yourself out. And then we'll try again. <laughs> <laughs> I think that works. I mean, I, I can definitely do a little bit of research to try and help understand why that might be happening. Um, <laughs> Monsteras are funny in that they they like less water than I think most people think. And they're, they also are sort of do better in less sun than most people think. Um, yeah. So not that I don't think that curling would necessarily be a reaction. Sorry, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to um, give therapy to your plants over the phone. But um, no, we can, we can definitely research that and think about <laughs> it a little bit more because, again, um, it's a sign of something. And so it's just a matter of figuring out what that sign means and then adapting yeah. to it. Yeah. I think what happened was my friend gave it to me in a jar of water. And so I walked it home in the water when they can live in water. Like they don't even need soil, I guess. They want soil, but they don't need it. Mm -hmm. And I got home and I planted it immediately in soil. And I think I should have let it adjust to the new home before I put it in soil because it had to do two adjustments at once. And I think Um, that was too much for it. Okay. But see, that's exactly it. Now, you know, I mean, it's literally every time that you introduce a new plant, you have this learning. And I think that's really the whole point of green elbows is like, just bring it home and just learn. Right. I mean, I don't want to be dismissive of plants like, oh, just bring it home, experiment. If it dies, no problem. I I'm not saying that. And yet at the same time, I think people are like, gosh, I don't want to bring it home. What if I can't take care of it? There's sort of a nervousness around it. And if you never bring it home and never start interacting with plants, you'll never learn from, I mean, you just learned two massive lessons, right? With these, with these two (laughs) plants, that's so beautiful. And now that's going to inform the whole rest of your journey with whatever new plants you might bring into your house. And if you don't just start with one and just experiment and say, if it doesn't go perfectly, um, you know, I'm willing to, you know, if it doesn't go perfectly, that's okay. Um, And I'll just keep trying. Because gosh, I've certainly like, so cactus, right, or succulents, everyone always says when I tell them about how much I love plants, and and the idea behind green elbows, I often hear, gosh, I'm so bad at plants, I even kill succulents. And actually, that's kind of easy to do. I actually get right. Succulents are the easiest plants. They love, love, love sunlight. So it's actually very hard to have them inside. Um, But that's what I found anyway. And there's a tendency, I think, for people to kind of want to overcare and overwater as well. So that's like an issue with succulents. And so, but I think that because someone has come and had difficulty, like you said, a monstera is supposed to be super easy to take care of. So let's say you imagine the plant, you know, ultimately dies, for example. Do you then say, gosh, I'm so bad at this. I'm not going to try again. Well, I think for some people that does happen. And that's what I want to help get over right I I have a whole series in my phone of photos of like plant fails where I've had all these plants die over time and you slowly realize why like for me a succulent I put a small succulent in way too big of a pot it totally got waterlogged rooted from the bottom and the top just fell off 
And it was like, oh, okay, so now I know definitely no succulents in big pots. No, not, you know, you don't give too much soil uh, because then you ultimately give too much water. And so it's just, it's such a, there's so, there's such good feedback there. Um, and that's just what I want to help people understand and learn is that with every new plant, you'll learn more and you'll be a better steward of them, the more plants that come in. And I just think they're such beautiful teachers. So allow that relationship to happen. Yeah, that's so true. And what's funny is I take so much pride when a plant thrives, but I guess we don't have to take responsibility in a negative way if it dies like something bad happened and it died like you can celebrate the win and not take the the loss too hard maybe exactly exactly I mean it's kind of like learning to walk right like you're um if you every time you fell when you were a toddler and you're like well this means that I can't walk you wouldn't be walking around today right and so it's like (laughs) you've got it it's just a matter of just trying again until you get it right until you know more and yes I I totally think that's right when you have let's fails quote unquote um yeah yeah it's not a reason to stop that's really the biggest lesson that I would say it's actually a you it's learning from it and continuing on and then you slowly become an expert over time I the other thing that I think is you know this idea of a green thumb that for certain, and that's actually where green elbows comes from, right? Just the idea you don't have to have a green thumb, just come as you are, let's learn together. And so there's this idea that some people are naturally predisposed to taking care of plants. And while that may be true, I actually think it's all of us are are naturally predisposed to taking care of plants. Yeah. I mean, it just the, look at our ancestors, look at what's in our DNA. We grew, we grew up with these things, right? Um, and so the separation that sometimes happens between us, I think, is actually very unnatural. And yeah. I think it's just a matter of actually going back to your very first question, what is a, a hippie and, and sort of the, you know, what we, this whole, the whole podcast is about is this idea of presentness and consciousness. And if you just bring present and, presentness and consciousness to taking care of plants, that's really how you're good at taking care of them, right? That's how you become good at taking care of them is watching them, being with them enough and learning what they have to teach you. Exactly. That's so true. And speaking of fails, I've had some like sustainability fails. Okay. Yeah. And like, I just move on from it and go, okay, well, I'm not going to give up and start drinking bottled water, I'm going to keep going and find a better solution that works for me personally. And it's the same with plants. Like, yeah, you don't give up just because your monstera doesn't like you. (laughs) You just find a plant that does like you. (laughs) Exactly. It's so perfectly said. You don't give up because you can't do it perfectly. You just keep going and say, okay, next time better. That's all we can do. Yeah. Exactly. What's something that you do that's definitely not hippie ah yes I would say it's so interesting because okay I it's actually getting caught up in consumption and not necessarily of things because I'm generally kind of minimal on that front in terms of clothes and house and all of that I don't buy a lot of stuff but sort of uh, getting and maybe it's not consumption but more um allowing myself to get caught up in the hustle culture Mm. so um I think there's I lived in New York for a long time and I don't want to blame everything on that city um but there's definitely um an energy of kind of doing it all 
working super hard, working really long hours, um, achieving excellence in absolutely every area of your life. And on one hand, I loved that because it showed me parts of myself that I didn't realize I had in terms of reaching and excelling and achieving things that I think that I didn't think possible of myself. For example, like running my first triathlon I did in New York. And wow. yeah, just as an aside, just as, as an illustrative example. And I don't think that I ever sort of uh, saw myself that way, but I think just the city's it demands excellence. And so you show up to meet it anyway, but at the same time, it also, I think demands a lot of energy. And so there's also a bit of a hustle culture, maybe there, or just broadly, right. This idea of achieving a lot and um, earning a lot. And if you just look at who we celebrate as a culture there, it's, it's often people with money, fame who are, who kind of have this hustle mentality. And I think what I'm trying to do is, that is find a balance between always reaching and learning and um, sort of achieving in a way that I contribute to the world around me. Um, and also, but moving away from sort of the badge of busyness, right? Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. that's something that I uh, am really still learning is just letting go of the hustle mentality, letting go of like more is better and really, really settling into just allowing myself to be and yeah. allowing that balance to be there, um, to be a, a be-er as much as a doer. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I bet Portugal is a good teacher of oh, that yeah. because you have to <laughs> slow down here. <laughs> you do. I love it. Actually, um, I'm sort of the kind of person that like, I'll, you know, be going to an appointment and I think, okay, I have exactly two minutes to get there. Perfect. And I'll walk out of the house and I'll see a neighbor and it would be so rude to just walk on. Right. And so it's a three or four minute conversation. And it's, I love that over and again, it's, you just sort of can't be in a rush here, um, which I love. And it's, it's a really, really good reminder every day to just slow, to just slow down. Yep. For sure. And you can't, you can't have expectations here because everything is different and unique and nothing always works and it's just it's very chill yeah exactly (laughs) which is so good it's yes a good teacher it is I'm curious about like the sustainability movement and we've been talking about that and living a little slower and a little closer to the earth but what's something that frustrates you about the sustainability movement yeah Um, So going back to sort of the other work that we were talking about in terms of responsible sourcing or just what corporations can do, I think because the sustainability movement is so strong and spoken of everywhere, I think that everyone sort of wants to put a stake in the ground or make statements about what they're doing. And I think what makes me nervous or frustrates me about that is that with all of the statements out there, Um, it can really lead to a lot of confusion amongst consumers, right? There's still a lot of the work on a consumer's shoulders to make sense of the statements that are being made. Are they true? Are you really doing the work that you say that you're doing? Um, Or is this, you know, greenwashing is sort of a term that we use in the field. Um, Are you just doing this sort of as a PR stunt? And Mm -hmm. there are companies that are doing incredibly good work that really is substantive in terms of, let's say, um, paying a living wage to their, uh, sorry, to their workers, um, which is, you know, or um, like 
the work that they're doing to really reduce energy, right? Um, and to do carbon offsets or, or all of these different things that they're actually really taking real true action on. Um, and then sometimes there are companies that are just making statements, but maybe there's not necessarily so much weight behind it. And I think that's what frustrates me is it, that it asks the consumer to do the homework. Um, and yeah, so just clarity of messaging um, and clarity of what claims really mean. I would say that's a, that's an area that the field has some more work to do. Yes, girl. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree so much. And the whole greenwashing thing is really frustrating for me because sometimes a company is taking a step in the right direction, but if they're not doing it across the whole corporate structure, then people go, no, it's just greenwashing. They're not perfect. So we hate them. And it's like, no, let's give them a chance to do something good and take a step in the right direction and not call it greenwashing and label them the devil and support the good efforts and the good work that they're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so true. I mean, it goes exactly back to what we were talking about 10 minutes ago, right? Perfect, mm -hmm. um, not letting perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think there, yes. yeah, that's, yeah, very applicable here as much as it is in taking care of plants. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. It does put so much responsibility on the consumer and it's confusing. And then you just give up or exactly. I don't know, like, and, yeah. yeah, exactly. And in the giving up, I mean, that's where you ultimately lose your power, right? Because going back to what I was saying, this voting with the, with the dollar, there is so much power there in terms of where you choose to spend your money and the type of companies that you decide to support. But if you don't yeah. have clear messages on the companies that you should support, right, how do you make that clear vote? Um, exactly. And so, and yeah, and you're right. I think that if confusion leads to inaction, um, mm. that's sort of the biggest danger of it. Um, and so I think there is definitely a, a balance to be had between consumers becoming more conscious and yes, looking into the companies that they're buying from a bit more, but not putting all of the work on, on the, on the customer. Yeah, for sure. And that's why the work that you're doing with the mining is so important and admirable. Ah, oh, love you. it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> My very last question probably is, are you optimistic about the future of sustainability of the planet? All of that stuff. Yes. Um, optimistic, yes. There are, I guess, there's like a um, two sides to this answer. So on one hand, very optimistic because there are two initiatives that I absolutely love and have been following. One is the idea of half earth. So this is something that's champion, championed by the, by the conservationist E.O. Wilson. And the idea is if we can preserve half of the earth's land and water, then we can save the majority of the species and in turn save ourselves. Um, and so there's work being done to actually set aside and ultimately um, yet yeah, to set aside, you know, half of the earth. Um, that's, we, I think we have a long way to go, but there, that's the idea behind it. And so just the fact that that idea is even out there and that people are focused on it, I think is really, really powerful. The other um, 
movements that I'm seeing that I'm really inspired by is the rewilding movement. So rewilding Europe is an organization and then it has different branches by country. Portugal is one of them. And so they're rewilding spaces. They're reintroducing species um, to actually bring ecosystems into balance again. And that's happening. And if it can happen in Europe, my gosh, uh, think about just the promise of other places. So those are two movements that inspire a lot of optimism in me. And just knowing that people are focused there, that work is being done there um, is really, really fills me with so much optimism. The flip side and sort of where I, um, I have some, I guess, hesitation or sometimes which causes me pause is that I look at those things and I get excited by those things, but I'm searching them out. Right. And I don't know that that's, that it's necessarily reflective of a broader um, perspective or a broader focus. And so I think just going back to this idea of hustle culture and consumerism and consumption, I think there just needs there's like a consciousness shift away from having more and just changing what we value as a society, right? And I and again going back to can we value more being rather than doing and attaining and having? Um and I think there just needs to be a big consciousness shift. I'm not sure how fast that's going to happen um, because, you know, we still see lines in front of stores to get the new tech item or the new clothing item, Um, not to point fingers or not to say that that's necessarily wrong because I think that brings certain people, you know, or it brings people a certain level of happiness. That's what I wanted to say. Um, And buying, you know, beautiful things I think can also enrich our lives. But I just think how can we move away from associating having things with our own worth or status? And I think there, if we can shift that then, and you ultimately shift consumption, then you ultimately also shift the demands that you're placing on the natural resources of the earth, right? Um, and I guess that's, are we really there yet in terms of that shift? I'm not sure. And so that's, I think that's, sort of one thing that it's going to take and I do see a movement slightly in that direction but that's where am I optimistic on that front I'm not sure I think um, hopeful maybe is the better word (laughs) yeah I think I have a similar view that about my level of optimism is like "Mm, I don't know if if we're there yet if people care enough yet to consume a little bit less but I think you're right. Like people are waking up to it a little bit more. And that idea of rewilding is so fun. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's amazing. And there's a whole idea that um, like European safaris, there's actually a European safari company. So thinking about that, right. And just the idea that you can stay in the continent and see beautiful animals and beautiful wildlife. Um, Yeah. And just the idea that we could yeah, yeah, rewild so much more and just bring health and vitality back to places that we've seen as, you know, really sort of overtaken by humans for a really long time. Um, And allowing some of it to go back to nature is so beautiful and so powerful. And funny enough, I think that's the antidote to the hustle. Like I think when you get burned out from being hustling all the time, then you want to be wild again and you want to get back to being a human animal. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. What great work. I'm excited to share all of this, all of this, the mining and the half earth. Oh, now half earth, 
is different from the idea. Like we see all the time that we've consumed three Earths worth of mm, things yeah. in one year. It's different it from is, that. It's different from that. Yeah. The idea is, yeah, half Earth, it's saving half of the Earth for, and saving meaning um, literally stopping, it, basically putting half of the Earth and the sea into cons- protected areas, right? So mm-hmm. that you would have that much land and that much sea where no extraction is taking place, where no, basically, mm-hmm. um, human activity is happening so um and so that that allows nature to come back and really find its balance again that's ambitious i love it it is (laughs) is ambitious but i i love the idea i mean you know we often talk about in our personal lives setting ambitious big goals and just by setting them the mere fact of setting them often changes the way that you think about how you're going to approach them and can give you more um just drive to actually go go, to actually get that far. And so I love the idea of how ambitious the goal is because if enough people hear it and sort of buy into it, yes, it may seem like too much, but if we are all working toward it together, why, if we're all working toward change together, why not set a really big goal that we can all work toward and aim high, right? That's the idea of aiming high. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. I love it. You're very welcome. I am so glad there are people in the world doing this work. And I'm so grateful for Becky for talking with us about mining. I learned so much about it. And I do have a little different perspective about some of the positive things it can do if it's done right. And I also love her philosophy about plants, especially when she said like, When you have a fail, it's not a reason to stop. And isn't that the truth when it comes to plants or podcasts or life or (laughs) everything, everything. You fail, you learn, and you keep going. So that was really, really fun for me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. And again, I want to remind you to check out green.elbows on Instagram. She does the cutest thing. She makes a Tinder profile for different plants and I just think that's so cute and clever so check her out there on Instagram and she'll share all kinds of goodness and knowledge about plants and other things too so thank you to Becky thank you for listening and I'll catch you soon